The key theme that is found in this reading of this passage is reconciliation. Reconciliation. There's a, a theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem. Um, he, he's the one that wrote Systematic Theology. Um, everybody really loves that book. Um, he's really uh, heavy in Bible doctrine. And he defines reconciliation as the removal of enmity and the restoration of fellowship between two parties. Enmity means opposition, means hostility towards someone or something. Uh, something like hatred. It's like, like when, when, when enmity is like, I'm just not for you. Now, when we read this passage, Paul is speaking to the Ephesians who were, not, who were Jews. They, they were not Jews, but they were Gentiles. Um, in order for us to truly understand this, we kind of have to go back and we had to look closely at the relationship between Jews and the relationship that Jews had with Gentiles. Um, Gentiles, if you guys don't know, is just a fancy way of saying not a Jew. Right? Gentile is it's saying, is, I think in, in Hebrew it's called goy. It just means that you're not a Jew, right? So basically, everybody in here would be Gentiles. Is there anybody here that's Jewish? Hello, Gentiles. Right? And uh, uh, we have to go back. If we really want to understand this relationship, we've got to go back to uh, the Bible where God makes his promise with Abram. So you guys know Abram, right? Before he became Abraham, God goes and um, calls Abram out of the land that he was living in, calls him to Canaan. And he says, hey, I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to make a covenant with you. Right? A covenant is basically a, an agreement between two parties. So God makes an agreement with uh, Abram. And he says, I will bless, I will, he will bless him. He will make him and his descendants God's people. And that God would be their God. And that they will be, their, they, they will be God's people. He will, he will bless them. And all the nations will be blessed through him. In Genesis 17:3 it says, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your journey, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, right, this is the other side of the agreement, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring and all throughout your, their generation, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Ouch. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant, and circumcised male, any circumcised male in your, in, in, who is not, uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now this is the beginning of this relationship between Jews and Gentiles, right? Like, so th this covenant, basically, this promise that God initiates, by the way, right? God starts this covenant, 
And it basically makes all of the descendants of Abraham his people. God's people are now designated as who? Who are God's people? They're Abraham's descendants. All of the people that flow from Abraham are going to be now called, and they are going to be God's people. And the sign of this promise is circumcision. You know, like Jews back then were the only ones that actually were circumcised. Now it's like something that you know most societies do, you know, out of you know for whatever reason. But then back then, only people that were circumcised were Jews. And from Abraham, we have Isaac. Remember Abraham, his his promised son. Um, and Isaac comes, and then Isaac, God makes the same kind of promise with Isaac. And then Isaac has who Esau and Jacob. And he and then Jacob, he's very tricky. He tricks his brother, you know, into like you know with for a bowl of soup. He gets his birthright. And then at the end, when Isaac's dying, he's really old, he's blind, and he wants to give away his blessing, right? His mom actually tricks him. He tells Jacob to trick his dad and say, hey, put like like fur on your chest and pretend that you're brother and then receive the blessing because Esau came out first, right? And Esau, in, in, in Jewish culture, it didn't matter if you're twins because Esau and Jacob were twins. It didn't matter if you were twins. It was whoever was firstborn gets the blessing, right? So it's like firstborn, you know, like oh, who's secondborn in here? And yeah, we're, we're, we get barely nothing, right? Firstborn got everything, right? It's so like Jacob is very zealous, and he, you know, he's almost like tricks his brother, and says, and he goes with his, with his fur on his chest, and he touches his hands. Oh, you're my, you're my favorite son, Esau, because Jacob really loved Esau. So I'm gonna give you this blessing. But then, who actually gets the blessing? Is Jacob, right? And then God, you can't take back a blessing. When you give a blessing, man, you just give it, right? And so Jacob, now it has a blessing. And then Jacob has many sons. He has, what, 12 sons, right? And out of the sons, one of them, you know, is, is a little bit too like, ha, 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 I'm so great. And then Joseph gets, like, sold into slavery by his brother, right? And he goes to the Potiphar's house. I'm giving you the very fast version of the Old Testament right now, right? And then he actually, you know, goes into prison, and then he actually becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And as a prime minister, his brothers come to him. He's like, surprise, it's Joseph, and then, like, you know, you thought you were going to, well, you thought we were going to lead to death. You know, God, you know, brought life through, like, surprise. And then, and then he brings all of his brothers. And so the 12 sons and Jacob live in Egypt. And for 400 years, they, 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 they have a bunch of kids, right? They just go crazy, you know. They have so many kids. They, they, they increase in numbers so much that, like, they're just everywhere. And they actually become the 12 tribes of Jacob, right? Within Egypt is where the 12 tribes came about 400 years. America has only been around for like 200 and some years, right? So imagine 400 years, like it's generations upon generations, right? And the, and they become a really huge group in Egypt, and then they go, and then after a while they like, you know, Egyptians are like these, you know, let's put them to work, and so they actually become slaves um, in, in Egypt, and 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 that's where the 12 tribes are created, right? And then um, you know, there's the Exodus, let my people go, Moses, you know, lets them out. And then, and then, and then God gives Moses the law, and then gives the people of Israel the law. And this is great because this is another aspect of the distinctness of the the the, the Hebrew people, right? First is circumcision, right? Well, everybody, all the males are circumcised. You know, you could tell when they take off their clothes. Oh, you're a Jew, right? Based on you know. But now it's like not just that, but now they have to start doing all of these things, like all of these laws, these rituals. These ceremonial things to cleanse themselves. They have to like have these dietary restrictions, right? God gives them the law, and then now they're even more set apart. They're even more distinct than anybody else in the world. They're following these laws, 
And it actually becomes their religious identity, like the law. Like we are followers of God's law. Nobody else follows these laws but our, us. We are God's people. And so, uh, you know, the, like, and, and, and where am I? I'm going really fast here, right? I'm trying to finish by a certain time. Um, and so they get the law, and then they become more Hebrew, right? And then, like, you know, they, you know the judges come, and all, you know, Deborah and Samson and all those the judges. And then all of a sudden, they're like, you know, like, we want kings. All the other countries have kings. We want kings. But then God's like, dude, I am your king. Right? You are different. This is God saying this. You are different than all of the other countries, all of the other nations that are in the world. You are very different than them. I am your king. You guys don't need no king. But they're like, oh, man, forget that. God, we want a king. Right? So they ask for a king. So they get Saul. Right? And then they get David. And then they get Solomon. And David is the greatest king. And then after Solomon, the kingdom splits, right? Judah is the southern kingdom, right? And, and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, and all the other ten tribes, right, um, go, go off with uh, Jeroboam, and they become the northern kingdom. They become the kingdom of Israel, which is actually Jacob's given, God's given name, right? This is history. So the term Jew actually comes from the southern kingdom because Judah, right, Jew comes from that, the word Judah. Northern kingdom gets, like, destroyed, the Syrians come, take them to the captain. They're never heard from again, right? They're wiped out. They all get married into Assyrians. They become just a completely different people. The southern kingdom now, Judah, the kingdom of Judah now becomes the Jews. So now this is the Hebrews. You know, the, the, the language is Hebrew, but the, the ethnicity, they call, know them. They start calling themselves Jewish people. They start calling that we are the Jews, right, out of the word Judah, right? And so now they go into, like, they get conquered by Babylon. And for 70 years, right, uh, for the, the Jewish people, right, they're actually allowed to hold on to their religious identity in Babylon for 70 years. And for 70 years, they're just fighting for their religious, like, their identity. Like, we are Jews. I know that we were in captivity in Babylon, but, man, we are Jews. And then they're free to go about and rebuild the temple. They rebuild the temple. And then now their identity is even more distinct, like, no matter who's conquered them, no matter who has come against them, there are the Jews. We are God's chosen people. You know, we are the, we're circumcised, right? All of these uncircumcised heathens out there are not us. We are the Jews. And so, uh, you know, they become even more distinct and, and even more just about themselves. They are the Jews. They are God's chosen people. They are separate and set apart for God. It's very ethnocentric. And, and, and everybody else, like we're the Jews and everybody else are not the Jews. That's kind of their mentality. And basically, they can think this way because who started all this? God. God is actually the one that actually set this motion into action with the, with the covenant. It's like, I am making a covenant with you, Abraham. You and everybody that comes for you are going to be my people. Right? Imagine that. Imagine if Korea alone, or God's people. So only Koreans know God, understand God, can hear from God, and, and are saved by God, and are blessed by God. Right? Imagine that, right? How, how like, like prideful we would be, right, to everybody else. It's like, you're not Korean. You don't know kimchi, right? But you see, just like how the law became corrupted in the hands of the Jews, their identity also was corrupted because it became really elitist. 
They forgot what God had said to their forefathers in Genesis 12. Is, uh, God first approaches Abraham. He says, And I will make you the great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. That was God's ultimate plan. That was the mindset that they, he wanted, God wanted the Jews to have. That through them, that all the countries and all the nations and all the people of the earth would be blessed. That was God's plan. But the Jews had a very narrow understanding of the blessings of God. They had a very narrow understanding of what the blessing was and who the blessing was for. It was for them. We're the Jews, right? And they were very distinct separation between them and everyone else on the earth. And God was only for them. This was their mindset. This was their mentality. And we can see it in the way the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles are depicted in the Bible. Like, this is Peter after Jesus in the book of Acts, you know. Like, he goes, God, Holy Spirit leads him to go to uh, this guy named Cornelius, who's, who's a, a God-fearer. He's, a, he's, a, he's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He goes, and the Holy Spirit comes with power. They all become saved. Uh, they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. They all get the gift of tongues. And he goes to the Jerusalem council, and he's talking to the Jews about what happened. He's so excited. He's like, dude, you guys don't believe it. Man, these Gentiles, right, they prayed, and they really asked for God. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came with power. They were saved, and they received the power of the Holy Spirit, and they got to give the tongues. It was amazing, right? He's explaining to them, and this is what the people, the Jewish people tell them. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the, the circumcised believe, believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Like, you can't even see what God has done. The first thing that they did is like, dude, you ate with them? Like, you actually went into their house? Like, that's the kind of disgust that the Jews had against Gentiles. This is en- enmity. You never say that right, right? This is like, this is hostility. Jews were actually supposed to have no dealings with Gentiles, not eat with them, you know, not, not hang out with them, because in essence, they were considered unclean, the Gentiles. But during Jesus' time, Many Jews took such pride in their cultural and religious heritage that they considered Gentiles unclean, calling them dogs, or calling them the uncircumcised heathens. And Gentiles and half-Gentiles who, who were the Samaritans were viewed as enemies to be shunned. This is the cultural setting. This is the cultural environment that Paul is writing to the, to the people in Ephesus. Right? When, when he says, like, you guys are Gentiles, this is the cultural like, like, like landscape that, that these people are receiving the words of Paul. It says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandment expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, back there in the temple, right, when Jesus is around, there's a temple. There was actually, like, the, the most outside court was considered the court of Gentiles. Right? They couldn't even, like, like, like and there was literally a wall that divided where the Gentiles could go and then all of the other Jews could go. And even within the Jews, there was like the court of the women, and there was a court of the men, and even there, like court for the Levites, and then even there was like 
the holy place, and then in the center was the holy of holies, where the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant was, right? And so, so this, in, in essence, is showing that, like, Gentiles can't even, like, like, because if you look at the temple, it literally is. The, the court of the Gentiles is basically the outside. It's just like everything on the outside. They can just kind of look from afar. And then all the Jews are in the inside. This is the wall. There was literally a wall. It was literally the sentiment by the Jews that separated the Jews from everybody else living on the earth. And back then, what Paul writes here is considered mind-blowing to the average Jew. They'd be like, this is bonkers, man. This is blasphemy that you're talking about. Because for the Jew, their ethnic, ethnocentricity, that is a word, was so important to them. It has, the law was just all about keeping themselves clean and set apart for God. But this is so important. Paul starts the letter to Ephesians. You know, in the, we read it earlier in chapter 1 about the blessings of God, right? This is, these are the blessings that you have in Christ. You guys are adopted as sons. And you don't even understand the fullness of the blessings, the heavenly rewards, the amazing blessings that you have. And in chapter 2, he's like, you know, because you were this. You were messed up. You guys were dead in your sins. But God, he reconciles like you back to him through the blood of Jesus Christ, through faith. And then he, he, he tells us one of the most important implications of the gospel and, and, and all that, that is happening. Um, and he, he talks about the most important implication of the gospel in his reconciliation between man and God and reconciliation between man and everyone else. you got to understand this, that the reconciliation, Paul's laying this out. He's like, hey, when God reconciled us back to him, it wasn't just this. It was also this. He, he, he tore down all of the, every wall, every hostility that we might have for one another, whatever race and ethno, ethnicity they are, God removed all of that. When he removed this, he removed this hostility, he also removed this hostility. Not only does this passage say that Gentiles can be saved, which is great, because all of us are Gentiles, right? Hooray. But it also, it also tells us that the hostility, the removal of the hostility, other version talks about enmity, right? It's basically like hostility and hatred and just like being against between Jews and Gentiles basically means between man and each other. Jesus didn't just die on the cross to reconcile us to God, but he died on the cross to reconcile us to each other. This is huge. And it's something that we as the people of God have to understand. That when Jesus died on, for our sins of, of man and, and the saints were reconciled to God, that enmity, that hostility between God and man was removed. That reconciliation came with a reconciliation between Jews and the Gentiles. And in essence, between any and all other believers. No matter what background, religion, race they may be from, in Christ means that reconciliation goes both ways. Vertically and horizontally. This is very important because this has very important implications for the church. Right? Billy Graham, who's heard of Billy Graham, right? I used to see Billy Graham so much when I was young. You guys probably never saw him. He was really old. Right? But when I was young, I used to watch, see Billy Graham all the time, man. He was young when I was young. I used to go to like those crusades and be like, dang, that's Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham, where is it? Where he says? Billy Graham, he, he once said, the number one problem in our world is alienation. 
rich versus poor, black versus white, labor versus management, conservatives versus liberals, east versus west. But Christ came to bring reconciliation and peace. In the world we live in, there is a lot of enmity. There's a lot of strife. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of division. Right? Why? Because the ruler of this world is Satan. And he, he's all about dividing man. Divide and conquer. Bring division amongst people. Like, hate them because they did this to you. Well, hate them because they did this to you. Bringing division. That's the, that's the plan of Satan, right? But then God, Jesus came to bring reconciliation and what? Peace. That is his, that was, when he brought reconciliation to God, he was like, hey, that's not it. I don't want to just have a bunch of individuals out there. Right? I want to have a body of Christ. I want to have like, reconciliation amongst each other. Ephesians 2.15, we read it. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in him one new man in place of two, so making peace. I like how the other version says it. It said, he made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. We're, we're all supposed to be one people. We are called to be one new people in Christ. And this is the identity. This is the new identity of the people of God now. It went from the Jews to everyone, meaning not only are we all eligible to be saved, but now we are all reconciled and, and at peace with each other because of what God has done, the reconciliation that he has brought. Right? It's both ways. And so what are these implications for the church? How should this church how should this truth reflect in the church today? How, how different should the church be regarding this, this, this passage that Paul is saying? Is that, dude, when, when God reconciled us, he reconciled us to each other. Number one, we are united in Christ. Meaning we are to be one in Christ, one people. We are called to be united. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we are both we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The reconciliation that Jesus brought was one that brought unity to the body of Christ. The church, the body of Christ, is called to be united. And it's apparent in the language that is used to describe the body of Christ. It's called the body of Christ. Right? You can't have a body, right? You can't have a body and say, like, I can't be a body and my legs are still at home. I can't be a body like here trying to preach and my head is like sitting in my living room, right? In order for a body to be a body, it all needs to be together. And even if we're together, right, right I, like I can't be a body. If like I'm sitting down trying to take a test for you guys students, like you're sitting there, you're trying to take a test, and, and my mind and everything is focused on the test and my arms are doing this, right? right? It cannot function as a body. Like the body of Christ, the, the language that is used in the Bible is showing that it needs to be united. There, need, there is a need in the body of Christ for us to be one. 
united by the power of the Holy Spirit. Unity is very important to God when it comes to his people. It's the body of Christ, the church. Jesus prays a prayer in John 17. It's called the chief priestly prayer. He prays this prayer before he goes to the cross. It's only recorded in the book of John. And he says, and he reads, I do not ask for these. He's praying for the church in the future. He's praying for all of the people, all of the saints that will be saved in the future. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may perfectly, they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus is praying this for all of the believers going into the future, all of the churches, all of the ministries, and all of the, the, the you know, the, the parachurch organization, all of like YWAM, and, and what else is there? Like, you know, the call, you know, like the passion, and, and all of these other organizations, all of these churches. Jesus is praying this, like, help them to be one. Help them to be one. This is Jesus going to the cross, and he's asking, he's praying this to God. He's like, he doesn't have that much time left. And we see an inside view of what Jesus is praying. And he's like, God, help them to be one. This is so important to Jesus. And it's so important to God. Help them to be united. Paul talks about this in Titus in chapter 3. He said, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is what the Bible talks about when, when somebody within the church is trying to stir up division. God takes the unity of his church very important. God is very serious about the unity of his church. We are called to be one. You know, like he talks about it later in Ephesians 2. It's like a building being, that's being built stone by stone. We are all reliant and dependent on each other. In order for one wall to exist, there also needs to be another wall, right? right? And then and another wall and another wall. And then at the cornerstone, you, I don't know if you guys ever seen a real cornerstone. But the cornerstone is like this big rock that is at the corner of a masonry wall that actually is a stability for all of the walls that are coming together. So we're, it's this picture of us all being together, building up as one, and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. He's very serious about his unity of his people. It says, a t- holy temple in the Lord is what's being built. But the church has become so good at picking out how we are so different from each other. Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, Charismatic, Conservatives. We're so good at pointing how different we are and we're not learning the one thing that Jesus wanted to see in his body, which is unity. How we are in common. God removed the wall of enmity, right? And we keep on building it back up. God removed this wall and we're like, oh, but we're different. Okay, here's a rock. This, You do things this way, we do things this way. We are different. We're not the same. 
I have better doctrine than you. You guys are like her- heretical, whatever you are. This, the, we, the church in itself is so good at picking out the flaws of all the other churches. But what Jesus wants is unity. He wants us to be one. He wants us to look at another church and say, dude, what is God doing in your church? That is amazing. We do things differently, but then, hey, let's look at what's, what we have in common. It doesn't mean that we go off and we become heretics. That's very different. Other places in the Bible, it talks about, hey, <laughs> make sure that you guys are, are on the lookout for false teachers. Make sure that you guys are on the lookout for, like, really bad doctrine and, and the way that, like, false teachers are going to kind of sweep us away. But then that's, that's one thing. But within the church, within his body, Jesus is saying, like, be one. Be united. Because you guys need each other. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We need to learn to love one another in the body, to listen and understand to one another. You know, And the differences, we have to go into the word of God. If there's a difference, we have to go into the word of God. Whether you're a charismatic, whether you're Methodist or Baptist, whether you're very conservative, Presbyterian, we got to find that truth in the word of God. So the one... We need to be united. Number two, reconciliation means no enmity. Everybody say no enmity. (coughs) No hate. As a church, we cannot hate people. This seems like such a simple fact. We hate sin. We hate the devil. But we cannot hate people. We talk about loving people a lot, but we fail to talk about the people that we hate. And I want to tell you, Jesus did not die on the cross for a church, for a bride that hates. For a church that hates. Verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might be create himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Through the cross, God has reconciled us to God. And that hostility, the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles is destroyed. Basically, the enmity between the people of God. Like the Jews are now the people of God, right? The people of God and everyone else is removed. Gentiles are what? Everyone else, right? This is foundational for the people of God. This is foundational for the church. We must love all and hate none. There is... There can be no hate in the church. We can disagree, but not hate. The church cannot hate Muslims. Jesus died for Muslims. We can't hate homosexuals. Jesus loves homosexuals. He died on the cross for them. We cannot hate non-Christians. We cannot call ourselves a church, you know, because in reconciliation that God brought between man and God, that reconciliation was one that brought peace to the new people of God and to each other. No matter what background they may be from, no matter what kind of lifestyle they may be living in, no matter what kind of like you know like doctrine they might have, no matter what kind of way that they may sing their praise songs, they might have flags when they worship. You guys might only sing hymns. They might be partying it in the club. You, we, as a church, we cannot hate. We can hate the sin. We cannot. We can't hate people. No matter what people group it is, no matter what condition that they're in, 
The church cannot hate, period. But God removed that enmity. Jesus Christ died on the cross to remove these barriers and these walls. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite authors, he says, We cannot pray in love and live in hate and still think we are worshiping God. Jesus calls for us to love, love each other, even love our enemies, right? We are so not good at this in the church and as individuals. When I see and hear what's happening out there in America and around the world, in the church, I see hate, I see mistrust, I see intolerance, I see bigotry. Even here in Korea, in the church here in Korea, not just in the world, but sometimes more within the church. This passage must open our eyes to the true identity of the people of God. The church is one with no enmity, meaning no hostility. We are not called to love our brothers, but hate this other group of people. The church should be the one place where enmity, hostility, hatred are not found. We need to open our eyes to that. So Jesus Christ removed that, that barrier. So it doesn't matter if you're black, white, Korean, Asian, if you're, if you're rich or poor, if, you're, if it's your boss or if, it, if you're an employee, no matter what it is, whether, whether they are saved or not, we should love non-Christians. The church needs to love the unchurched. But so much so, we see the church and just be so disgusted with the unchurched. Jesus was never disgusted with anyone. He was, he would, other people were disgusted. You're like, Dude, you're eating with a prostitute. And Jesus is like, heck yeah. There's a book, of Jesus, The Meals with Jesus. He talks about so much of, of his ministry blew people's mind because he would eat with people that he wasn't supposed to eat with as a rabbi. He goes to the woman, right? He goes to that. He actually goes to a rabbi's house and this woman who's a known prostitute comes up, washes his feet. And they're like, dude, you're going to let her touch your feet? And he's like, yeah, she's beautiful. I love her. I'm going to let her anoint my whole body. There was no disgust in the heart of Christ. He loved. And he wants us to love as his people. We have to be marked by love. That means we cannot hate. No matter how much we might disagree with people, there cannot be hate in our heart. Number three, not only have we been reconciled to God and to each other, we are given the ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 18 from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. And it starts with that. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God gave us, right, the church, you and me, the ministry of of reconciliation. Later, Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors are basically what? Representatives of a certain group of people in another nation, right? And when you go, like, South Africa, there's an American or there's a Korean ambassador, right, in South Africa, living in South Africa. He represents Korea in South Africa, right? We are people of God, and we are ambassadors for his kingdom, his purpose, his way in a world that is not ours. And we need to reflect his, his, what is important to him. And the message that God places on us as his ambassadors is one of reconciliation. Reconciling people to God 
And then also reconciling people to the body of Christ. Saying, dude, God loves you. And you know what? We love you. We can't expect non-Christians to come and be reconciled to God, but they hate the body of Christ. You know what? That's what's happening. There's a quote by uh, Gandhi. Gandhi said a lot of wise things, right? But he said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And as an ambassador of Christ, we have to know that the heart of the message is love your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And also love those people that are around you, everyone. Knowing that the love that we have from Christ is one that removes the hostility between the people of God and everyone else. If the hostility is removed between Jews and the Gentiles, then it should also correlate between the new people of God, the church, and everyone else. And this third point, that we are given this ministry of reconciliation, if we are to live out this ministry, we need to learn to, to connect with non-Christians. To go beyond the walls of the church. This is something I'm preaching to myself, by the way. As a pastor, it's really hard for me to come in contact with non-Christians. I used to do it really well when I used to work with Sharkies. I used to, I used to work in the kitchen in Sharky. I would come out, and I would have a beer, and I would talk to somebody. He's like, hey, what are you doing in Korea? I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, Baho, that's awesome, dude. You know, I worship the devil. And I'm like, oh, that, that's interesting. I've had these conversations. He's like, well, you know, I worship the devil. And he's like, oh, all right. And then we would talk about sports, and we would talk about football. And, he, and then all of a sudden, we find himself, and then, like, he would become my Facebook friend. And we would talk on Facebook, and all of a sudden, he's helping me get Thanksgiving turkeys for the church for our Thanksgiving banquet, right? I used to be able to do this. I used to be able to connect with non-Christians. It's hard for me now. But it doesn't mean that I, 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 I shouldn't do it. I need to. This is I'm preaching to myself here. But if we really want the ministry of reconciliation, we have to come into contact with non-Christians. You guys are given the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling people to God and people to the body of Christ. And it starts with us loving on people, whether they are believers or not, whether they're Asian, black, white, Hispanic, South African, North African, I don't know. Wherever they're European, South American, whether whether they are whether they are nice people or whether they're turds, right? Whether they're like, you know, like really like conservative or whether they're, they're really like have got a nose ring and like she has a nose ring or like has a hair all like, you know, whatever it is. We, God removed the enmity between all people, right? Whether, whether you know, like, whether they're cat people or dog people, right? They're, God has removed the enmity and, and as ones with the ministry of reconciliation, God gives us his ministry we need to go and make connections with the lost. This is something I'm preaching to myself about. As a pastor, it's hard, man. But a lot of times, I, I'm, I'm just talking with Christians. Like, on Sunday ends, and then, and then Monday and Tuesday, and all of a sudden, I'm like having to talk with all people from church, and this and this, and then all of a sudden, Sunday again. It's like, oh, more Christians, right? But I need to break out of this. I need to learn, right? This is something that I need to practice myself. <coughs> Because that hostility has been destroyed. And we've actually been given a ministry to actually go out and make connections with the lost. Bringing reconciliation to God and to the body of Christ. People, like when you see a lost person, you, you got you to gotta be able to say, hey man, God loves you, but then 
So does the body of Christ. And we got to be able to have say that with a sincere heart. Last thing, I want to end with this. I'm running a little long, but I want to leave you with a tip. Everybody say tip. Right, tip. Right, I'm going to leave you a tip. A tip, not like a cute tip, or like I'm not going to give you any money. I'm going to give you an advice, right? This is the advice. Loving people isn't a feeling. Everybody say that. Loving people isn't a feeling. If, you're gonna, if you want to expect for you to feel this tingly love for the people that you hate, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Right? If somebody like is mean to Ethan, I'm not going to be like, oh, wait, okay, I'm going to just wait until I have this tingly loving feeling for this, for this teacher that is, is, is really mean to my son. No. If I'm going to love, it requires action. Jesus Christ loved us. What did he do? He took action. He didn't just stay up in heaven and say, I had this feeling for Caleb. I'm just going to feel this love for you. No. Love is action. Love needs to be backed by action. Action actually produces emotion change. And so one of the things is, Jesus, he, he came, he did something. He died on the cross. And so for us, for us to love even the, the people that are hard to love, because it's easy to love people that are love us back, right? It's easy for me to love Ethan. He loves me, man. He comes up to me, and I love you. I love you. That's so easy, right? But then there's people in our lives and people in, in our workplaces, people even in the church or people in our family. It's going to be hard for us to love. So what do we do? How do we, how do we, if the feeling ain't there, what do I do? I want to give you one tip. Pray. Start with prayer. Prayer is action. And it's genuine prayer. You've got to genuinely be able to pray. Artie Kendall told this story at this retreat. It was an amazing meeting, this guy, by the way. And he was, uh, he was uh, the chaplain at Westminster Abbey in, in England, in Oxford, for 25 years. And when he was there, he used to do the, he used to do the morning devotions. <coughs> he used to teach every morning. He says he has like thousands of sermons that downloaded in his mind for every time that he preached at Westminster Abbey. And he said that he was preaching and he was doing this, he was singing the hymns and then this lady walked into the, the sanctuary that, that he knew he radically hurt one of the members in his congregation. He really hurt them. Right? And then this lady sat down and then he's just like, all the anointing just got sapped from his body. He's like, right? And he just could not continue and he was telling God, like, God, I cannot continue. What do I do? I can't preach now. Like, this is, and then God told him, like, hey, like, do you love this person? He's like, no. He's like, I want you to pray for her, and I want you to bless her. He's like, all right, I bless her. Pray for her, I bless her. Like, do you really mean it? He's like, no. And pray for her so that you really mean it. Would you, would you, would, would it be okay if I radically blessed this woman in a way that would, like, supernaturally change her life? Would you, would, would, can you actually say that? I bless this woman. Lord, bless this woman. And he had this moment where he's like, I don't know. I, I really wish that she would just like shrivel up and die, right? But then he came to this conclusion. like, no, Lord, I want you to bless this woman. And then you know what? He said that God radically blessed this woman. This woman that he actually knew had terribly hurt one of the members of his church. Actually blessed her. Still alive today. Flourishing. But he said at that moment, he found the key into like coming out of these things where it's hard for people. To, I, I can't love this person. It's hard for me to love this person. What do I do? Pray. Genuinely pray. I know that there are people in your life that you can't, you're not going to get a feeling. Huh? 
you're not going to get a feeling like that gooey feeling of love for them. Is that me? Oh, it is me, sorry. I don't want to bother you guys anymore. You're not going to get a feeling. You're not going to get these emotional, googly feelings about people that don't, that rub you the wrong way. Really. I used to have a coworker. I used to be like, dude, it's really hard to love you, man. It really did, man. I don't know what to do, man. I'm just not going to talk to you anymore, right? But then, you know what? Like, like pray for them. This is one action because when you pray, and when you genuinely can pray for someone, God doesn't change them, but you know what God does? God changes who? You. God will change your heart. It's a supernatural thing, guys. It's a way that God taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Well, in heaven, I love everybody. And then I pray, Lord, help me to love. Bless God, even though he is that way. Bless him anyways, Lord. I love Scott, right? He's going to take me on an airplane ride one day. He's a, he's a pilot, and he said, if I go to Canada, he'll meet me there and take me on an airplane ride. I'm going to hold you to your word, man. So pray. Heck yeah. Who wants to join me? Let's go. Pray for people. Right? This is one tip. I leave you with this tip, and you know what? It's changed my life as well. It's changed the way that I see people. We're going through this whole situation with our church and all of the shaking that's been happening. Right? There's people where I was like, I don't know what to do, God. Like, the feeling is not there. And he's like, pray. Genuinely pray. Because if you can genuinely pray and say, God, bless them, and you can actually expect God to actually bless them, you know what's going to happen? God's going to bless your heart. He's going to start to change your heart. Right? Then we can be these people. We can be the church that God has called us to be, a church without any walls. We're not supposed to have walls. We're not supposed to have hatred, enmity, all this hostility. We're supposed to be the one place in the world where people can go and say, dude, this is what they love you. Right? But it comes from us understanding what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. Let's all stand up. Let's close with prayer and benediction. Sorry it went a little long, guys. We had the meeting. Try to keep it short, but I couldn't. Forgive me. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you reconcile us back to you. That although there was enmity, there was hostility between man and God, Jesus Christ, you died on the cross so that you would remove, that you would kill that hostility between man and God. That in you, that we, that we have a connection. We have a vertical connection with you. But Lord, help us to continue to remember that vertical connection comes with horizontal reconciliation, a reconciliation between us and all of the people that are on this earth. You, you say to love everyone. And we say, Lord, that's hard. I don't know if we can. But, Lord, we, in you, we know that it's possible. We know that we could be a people of love. And, Lord, especially I pray that you will remove hostility from our hearts, that you will remove enmity from our hearts, that you will remove division from our hearts, that we can be a people without walls, now, although we might be disagree, that we can still reach out and say, hey, there is love here. I can bless you. I can, I can pray blessings over you and say that I love you because it's not my love, but it's the love of Christ. We thank you for this word, and we thank you for your presence here in this church.